Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. My job is not to bring justice myself. My job is to get other people to want to do justice. Yeah. If I look in their eyes and they have that light, you know, I know we've made it. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing? I'm looking at you in our conference room in Savannah. You're just right across town. I know. I thought I actually my plan was to just call into the Zoom from your inside your office. (laughs) (laughs) Except that you realize there's paper everywhere and nowhere to sit. I I didn't look, although I would not be surprised if that's the case. But I just decided to respect your personal space. And so I'm I'm in our conference room instead. (laughs) Thank you, Yvonne. <laughs> I'm so considerate. How yeah, are yeah, you, exactly. Steve? I, I am. I'm great. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm great. So I had a full day of depositions yesterday, up in North Carolina, but uh, but back on track today. Awesome. Um, well, I'll just get to it and introduce our guest. I'm very excited um, to have our guest, and I think the two of you might have been recently on, maybe on the same panel or something, Steve. Yeah, I was just going to say, so we, so this is the Great Trials podcast, and so we're talking about, you know, a great trial where we, where uh, our guest, Ken Suggs, uh, got a tremendous verdict, but what we were just speaking on was, uh, at, for the South Carolina Association of Justice, was uh, things we learned from losing trials. So uh, this one, this one's a little bit, a little bit happier uh, to talk about that uh, a winning trial, but we did, we were on a panel talking about stuff we've learned from uh, when we've when we've not been on the successful side of cases, very very cool. I mean, those are the those are the learning moments. Um, you know, I've I've never learned more about driving than when um, my driving was not so good, and uh, I got into <laughs> minor car accidents as a new driver. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, well, our guest, as Steve mentioned, is Ken Suggs. Ken, thank you for being on the show today. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this case, but first let me tell our our listeners a little bit about you and where they can find you. Ken Suggs is a principal in the firm of Janet, Janet and Suggs, and they've got pretty great website name. I mean, we talk about a lot of good websites names, but I just like this one. Um, It's jjsjustice.com and you can look Ken Suggs up there. Um, Ken is known for his advocacy in the areas of medical malpractice, product liability, catastrophic injuries, and wrongful death. And I'm not going to read his whole bio because he has accomplished a ton, but some of the impressive things are that he's been um, Best Lawyer's Lawyer of the Year in 2010, 2012, and 2016 in product liability litigation. 2009, 2014, and personal injury litigation. I bet you he has even more that he just hasn't updated on his bio. (laughs) Um, He's a former president of the American Association for Justice and the South Carolina Association for Justice. And one of the coolest things he's accomplished is if you are familiar with the Southern Trial Lawyers Association, he was the 2016 recipient of the War Horse Award, which is a huge deal. Yes. Um, He's routinely a super lawyer, National College of Advocacy. Um, he got his JD from University of South Carolina, our USC. When we say USC, that's that's what that's we mean right. in the Southeast. <laughs> but that gets confusing for people out of the South. Um, and his bachelor's from Clemson. And before attending law school, he served in the U.S. Navy, including um, two years in the Vietnam War. So, um, Ken, thank you so much. I'm going to stop bragging about you, but thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to finally stopped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just stop accomplishing so much, Ken. I mean, come on. Yeah, if you, if you think about this, this is really your fault for being so impressive. <laughs> Just to throw another thing into my bio, I am a specialist, you know. I specialize in cases that have been turned down by at least three other law firms. Yeah, I, I've, been, I've been down that road before, too. <laughs> Well, um, I'm going to give a brief summary about the case that we're going to talk about today. I think I'm probably going to get a lot wrong about it, and I'm going to gloss over a lot of the medicine, um, and we can talk more about that later. But I learned, I learned more than I knew um, about this area and about fetal monitoring, um, just reading about this case and this result. Yeah. 
Um, and I'll just say before you get started, uh, you know, Ken's opening in this case really is just a master class on, uh, on uh, uh, you know, fetal heart monitoring and, and, uh, and birth uh, medicine. And um, just, I mean, you, you know, you really taught the jury as a, as a teacher, it, it, you know, really helped to just read the opening just to really understand everything that was going on. Absolutely. It's, um, it's very, it's very, he kept it very punchy too, which I appreciate. It just yeah. was, um, I imagine the jury appreciated it as well, but it was really informative, but not long and not complicated. Um, so the case we're going to talk about today is, um, it's a birth injury case. The baby's name is Taylor Phillips. M the mom is, her name is Lisa Phillips. And I think the dad's name is Josh. Is that right? I get that right? Right, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm on a roll. Um, the case is Phillips, well, I guess it was the, the baby's initials at the time, um, versus it was originally against Washington County Hospital, Dr. Lynette Isles and her practice group, Flexible Family Care. Um, but the hospital settled out of the case, so at the time of trial, it was against Dr. Isles and, and her practice. Uh, this case was tried in Washington, Iowa in 2017, and we're going to talk a little bit um, more about that venue in a bit. Um, Taylor was born, the baby was born on April 10th, 2010, and her mom, Lisa, was about almost 42 weeks pregnant at the time of the delivery. Um, and so Taylor was a post term baby. She was a macrosomic fetus. We're going to talk about what that means. Um, so Dr. Isles induced um, the mom's labor. And we'll talk a little bit more about that method of induction either um, as well, because I had some questions about that. But I'll skip that. Looks like Dr. Isles really didn't see um, Lisa, the, Taylor's mom, that much um, while she was in labor. And after a few hours of labor, the doctor decided to remove the continuous fetal monitor and use intermittent monitoring instead. Um, it was, as we're going to talk about, and I'm sure Steve and I both have questions about, um, this really seemed like kind of a crazy decision because um, when it was on, the monitor was already having trouble monitoring Taylor's heart rate and was noting um, some problems like variable decelerations, signs that the umbilical, umbilical cord was maybe being um, compressed, which affects the delivery of oxygen to the baby. Um, uh, one of the things that I noted was that the nurses who were charged with caring for Lisa um, and for Taylor, the baby specifically had charted that the baby was hard to monitor and that they were suffering signal loss. But anyway, Dr. Isle switches to intermittent monitoring of the baby's heart rate. And eventually, as you can imagine, where this is leaving, where this is leading, one of the nurses notes um, when performing an intermittent check that things are not going well for the baby. Um, eventually, another doctor is called because I should mention that um, Dr. Isles was a family physician and was not credentialed for performing C-sections. Um, so another doctor was eventually called in who, who immediately takes mom to surgery, performs a C-section, or maybe not immediately. I guess we'll talk about that too. Um, performs a C-section. There's a knot noted in the umbilical cord. Um, the pH of the, from Taylor's umbilical cord basically established, it was a pH of 6.756, which is very low for those who are not familiar with that. Her APGAR scores were very low. And Taylor was ultimately diagnosed with um, cerebral palsy. She is quadriplegic and nonverbal, but it sounds like, and, and I definitely want to talk about this, it, it sounds like she's um, at least not significantly mentally impaired, that she, that, um, it seems she's able, she wants to communicate, but, but is not able to speak. So after about a three-week trial, there was a jury verdict of $18,126,600, a terrific result in, in what sounds like a tough venue. Um, but before we go any further, I know that was long. Ken, how much stuff did I screw up? I, I don't, you really didn't screw up anything that would be important to, for, to understanding the case. You know, there, there are details that we can get into, but 
you know, you did a, a great job. <laughs> Thank you. This is, this is the, uh, we should just call this the fishing for compliments. Uh, That's podcast right. That's now. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I alluded to this and it's kind of different from the medicine of the case, but I, but I kind of want to start with it for several reasons, including the fact that I think this is something from law- that lawyers all over the place in all different practice areas, um, run into, which is this sounds like a, a very rural county. Um, and you mentioned, Ken, that when you were getting ready to try this case, that people in the courthouse really couldn't remember the last time they had tried a civil case. Um, so can, can you tell us a little bit about this venue? Uh, sure. So we're out uh, Washington, Iowa. It's about 30 miles from Iowa City, which is the nearest bigger city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's way out in the country. Uh, in, in, Lisa and Josh lived out on a, a dirt road, actually, or gravel road. Uh, the population of the whole county is about 7,000 people. Wow. Uh, and, it, you know, when we did board our, uh, one of the questions I've learned to ask is, is there anybody on the jury panel who is either related to or knows someone else on the panel? I got kind of burned by that one time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and everyone on the jury panel raised their hand. You know, everybody <laughs> knew everybody else on the jury. Uh, the the venue was a place that, you know, this we tried this in January of 2017. They had just been through an election, obviously, where they voted about 85% Republican. So, you know, not only was it rural and sort of poor, I mean, they're farmers out there mostly, and they're very conservative people. Yeah. But that was to our advantage in the end. And is the how is Vordire there? I mean, or is it kind of open or is it limited into what you could do? No, it, it was open. You know, we had a really good judge. Uh, and I need to mention before we go into my local counsel in this case, Fred James, is just a, an outstanding lawyer. And, uh, he, you know, he was a big contributor. And plus, his dad is sort of a legend in Iowa. Uh, Dwight James and all the, everybody knows Dwight and Fred. So it was really great having him with us. And he made some, you know, really good contributions to the case, one of which I'm sure we'll talk about, but uh, that was really good. So, um, and then I forgot what you asked me last. <laughs> I was asking about how Vordire works there. Oh, Vordire. So it, it's, it's open. Uh, we were, we took about a day, I think, to pick the jury. Uh, and the, the judge, you know, you, you just, it was a place that's not like North Carolina where you can take a month to pick a jury, but you know, the judge was fine with whatever we wanted to do as long as, you know, we followed the rules. And it, I mean, at that point, the the hospital had settled out of the case, but did you have to sort of explore, I, I would, you know, did you have a lot of people who in a small, uh, with a small population like that, who were also sort of associated with the hospital? Uh, we had a lot of people who had been patients at the hospital, and it was sort of mixed whether they'd gotten good care or bad care or mediocre care. Uh, but, you know, one of the motives of settling with the hospital was uh, to, to eliminate that element. The, frankly, Dr. Isles, we, we were surprised in Bordire because she didn't have a good reputation. She'd been disciplined for giving out drugs. And one of the jurors in the post-verdict interview said, I knew, didn't know her before, but I've heard all about her now. Uh, but, you know, nobody on the jury said that they'd heard any of these things. She'd actually been in, in the newspaper, you know, a few years earlier for this reprimand. But, you know, apparently nobody knew her. But, you know, we really were nervous about a 25-bed community hospital where you would have to go if you had any kind of emergency. Right. right. Was she originally from the area? Or no, it, she was not. Okay. She had moved in from somewhere else. She, okay. She, and her husband was a physician in the area, too. Okay. Um, one of the things that surprised me, but I, I'm, I'm coming at this from a totally non-judgmental place. I have never been pregnant. I haven't delivered a baby. I was surprised that um, Dr. Isles was, was delivering the baby um, despite not having the credentialing in, for C-sections. Was that a an element of this being just sort of, you know, an area where we didn't have a lot of access to medical care. It, that, it's actually very common, especially in smaller rural areas that have trouble getting an OB in there. Uh, but this, you know, there are places here in South Carolina where family doctors are delivering babies and, and even in some big cities that, um, so it's not uncommon at all for a family. Oh, okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, One of yeah. the issues when that happens is, 
you know, we argue that the family doctor has to be ever more vigilant because it's going to take time if the if a C-section becomes necessary, it's not like you can roll somebody into the OR and do it in five minutes. You have to get the operating room crew and the, the credential doctor in to do it. So you sort of have to have your 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 trip wire set a little closer uh, to to the danger. So, so I wanted to ask, I mean, um, so knowing that there's only 7,000 people in the county and, and actually, Ken, that's something you and I talked about <clears throat> at that last um, uh that we presented at because I tried a case in front of in a county where there's only 9,000 people and having a local council who knows people is just, you know, so incredibly important. But um, part of your evidence in the case was that um, that Lisa had come into the hospital, I think it's 730 in the morning and is there all day and doesn't end up having the C-section till about 645 in the afternoon. Um, it, but during that time, uh, Dr. Isles only saw her twice, once at 8.30 and then once at um, one, no, at 8.14 and then once at 1.30 um, <clears throat> and just doesn't seem to be there. But, you know, if you're talking about a, a county where there's only 7,000 people, a 25-bed hospital, what was she doing that she was so busy doing something else other than tending to her patient? That she was she was having office hours. She was taking care of patients in her in her office. With people with you know whatever kind of ailments we didn't know. But that what you what you're touching on is a big element in the case, and I think a big element in the malpractice cases. One of the things we did in Bordier, and I like to do in Bordier, is ask in a malpractice case, is ask the jury, "Do you like your doctor?" And and almost everybody does. And and then the follow up is, "What do you like most?" And uh, the answer I get more than other answers, you get a lot of different answers, obviously, but the more, most prevalent answer is because he or she spends time with me. So in this case, I knew she hadn't done that. I knew that was important to these people as a the sign of a good doctor. And part of our theme was this is just a sloppy doctor. Right. And there were lots of elements to that. So we actually had a little diagram. I, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the opening uh, statement PowerPoint, but and, you know, I put together, it's pretty crude because I made it myself. I'm, I'm from a Zoe Little Page school of graphic. <laughs> I, I thought, it, it, you, are you talking about where, showing where she wasn't there and then when she was there? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was incredibly powerful Same. because it just, you know, it, it, you, there's, you know, you, you were using a red line to show when she wasn't there and then a, a, I think a little green space or gray space when she was. And there's just so much red on the page that uh, it's really effective. Well, you know, that's one of the things I like to try to do is if I can find a graphic that tells the story, uh, you almost only have to show that to get people thinking. Uh, and, and I started that one of my experts in another case where uh, a baby, unfortunately, had brain damage because our, our, our oxygen saturations kept going down, made a diagram showing lines going down where it was. And, and we jazzed it up, put it in blue. I, I take those things sometimes and sit them in the lobby and see what the UPS guy says when he comes in. <laughs> right, yeah. Look at it and say, man, something went wrong there. You know, I think we've got it now, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really jumps out, you know, looking through your opening there, you know, you had a lot of visuals, a lot of great, you know, um, you know, blowouts from records and the important, you know, you did a good job of explaining, you know, what you're looking at at the, at the heart straight on the, fetal heart rate strips and things like that. But that it's, it's just funny because you did it yourself and it's just something that made sense to you, but it's, it's the thing I remember most from all the materials that you sent us was just that one slide. I'm really glad to hear that. You, know? <laughs> yeah, you never yeah. know. You know yeah. how that's so, gonna so Ken, I have a question just from case organization, because you sent us um, what I think you call your case summary and it's just a document that basically lays out all the facts. And I was just wondering, is this a uh, internal document that you keep on your cases? It, it is. Yeah, we it's because I needed everything in one place. Yeah. That way I don't have to go back and read the records all over the place. And I, at 74 years old, I need a little <laughs> memory jog, you know. <laughs> well, it's a great document. I was just I was looking at I me. Mean, it really lays out everything and just has all the information you need in in one document to, you know, pretty much know at least, the, you know, all the basic facts about the case. So I'm definitely going to uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, show this around at my office and encourage people to maybe uh, maybe do something similar for us. Sure. Absolutely. 
You know, what's funny is what I noted about it, Steve, is when I was looking through all the materials that Ken had sent us, I was like, oh, case summary. This is a, this is a perfect place for me to start and like get my arms around the case. Yeah. And I started looking at it. And it just goes to show you my sort of lack of experience in this area is <laughs> that so I was like, oh, I got to start way more basic than this and then right, come right. back to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is great because all the medicine, all the, the timeline, everything is right there. Um, well, so speaking of the medicine, one of the things that I had alluded to earlier that I did not know about in general was, was were the different options for sort of monitoring a fetus. But also in reading about this case, you get to the point where Dr. Isles switches from this continuous monitoring, which just from a purely common sense layperson standpoint, sounds like the ideal situation, continuous, to this intermittent um, method. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the medicine behind that, why that decision was made, why Dr. Isles was making that decision, and then, you know, obviously what your, you and your experts had to say about that decision. Well, you know, the only reason Dr. Isles could ever come up with for uh, intermittent monitoring versus continuous was the comfort of the patient. And, you know, of course, we, we ended up arguing that Lisa had asked that she not receive an epidural uh, a pain relief because she thought it might harm the baby. So she would never have put her comfort above the safety of her child if she were given the choice. This is, this is a... Uh, one of the big things you run into in, in birth injury cases is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who are putting out all this information that fetal monitoring does no good because the rate of the number of cerebral palsy cases has not gone down since they started fetal monitoring. Uh, and we, we can talk more about that, but this, and, and they're, they're, they say that intermittent monitoring is just as good, even though 85% of the Physicians in the United States use continuous monitoring, and the other 15% are, are mostly being, women who are being delivered by midwives who don't want, who themselves say, "I don't want the monitor." I mean, there's just like you know, just like there's some anti-vaccination people, there's some anti-monitor people. Right, right. And and the studies that uh, about intermittent monitoring show that uh, only three percent of nurses can get it right because they have so many other things to do. Uh, so you really shouldn't be doing it at all unless you can do one-on-one -on -one continuous monitoring by the nurse who can put, and, and the way that's done is they take the belt off and they just hold a Doppler on the belly to hear, you know, or a fetoscope, which is a, a sort of special stethoscope, to hear the baby at certain intervals. And as you see in this case, this nurse didn't do it right, that she was confused about how frequently she was supposed to do it, whether it was every 30 minutes or every 15 minutes. Uh, there was a protocol that said every 15 minutes in active labor. Um, and and she was just, you know, putting it on there, listening and taking it off. And it's just not as efficient. Um, but, you know, and we, we had the, the you know, they, they do this all the time. And it was one of the fun moments in the trial, by the way, when their expert is on the stand trying to defend intermittent monitoring, even though he didn't do it. Right. There's, there's a great paper by an obstetrician named Roger Freeman who compares, who says you've got, you're getting it all wrong because what they say is fetal monitoring is no good because we see something bad on the monitor. We operate and get the baby out and the baby's fine. And, you know, and Roger Freeman says, that's the point. You know, right. it's not a false positive, which is what they cause it, call it. And, you know, Freeman has this thing. You don't use a thermometer to predict the outcome of the flu. You, lose, you use it to find out if somebody's got a fever and they need to be treated. And so on cross-examination, I use the example and suppose I'm walking on a treadmill and my doctor sees something bad and operates on me and puts a stent in. Do you think that's unnecessary surgery? And he said, yes, that's a false positive because you didn't have a heart attack. Yeah. And, you, know, you know, you see the jury at that point just sit back and say, what the world are you talking about? Yeah, and those yeah. Were the fun things was in closing argument. I found an illustration of a guy that looked like me. He had a goatee and a little pot <laughs> belly walking on a treadmill. So I used that and <laughs> to talk about that that part. Of it. Well, and I, I thought you know this point of the you know switching to intermittent monitoring, knowing that she's had you know having these variable decelerations. You know, I, the way you use that in closing to say that you know she's screaming out for help. 
you know, her heart's telling you it needs help because it's slowing down and no one's listening. No one's there, you know, it's, it's just so effective. Um, but you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, and maybe I just don't understand enough about the medicine, but it seems like that well, at least what you were explaining that, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're looking for what's happening with the decelerations around the contractions, because if it's an early deceleration, it's normal. If it's a late deceleration, that's a problem. And if it's variable, that can be a problem with the cord. So would, it, I mean, how else would you find that unless you're continuously monitoring it? I mean, well, if you're only doing it every once in a while. You can't do it very well. I mean, the nurses will put their hand on the mother's stomach and ideally you would do that intermittent monitoring until you felt a contraction and then you would see what the heart rate did after that. Uh, but it would be, it's, you know, obviously you'd have to be really sensitive to tell whether it was a, an early versus a late because the late starts after the start of the contraction, um, you know, and, and is there a lag and, you know, just it, it's just not nearly as good, which is why 85% of the people do it the other way. Right, right. Right. Well, and on top of that, I mean, the, the statistics, especially the the 3% or, or roughly that as far as the people who can actually do it right, um, were shocking to me. But then on on top of, of that, of just the, the general sort of, um, you know, sh- shortcomings of intermittent compared to the continuous is that is are the risk factors that this baby had for some sort of complications, which, you know, I kind of touched on and summarized in case, but didn't really explain what they meant. Can you talk about, you know, just even going into this before the continuous monitor is hooked up, what sort of risk factors there were to be already on the lookout for complications? Right. So, so uh, Lisa's brother, who older brother, uh, was born at nine pounds, 10 ounces. So uh, Lisa had a history already of delivering big babies. And then in the, in the six month ultrasound, uh, Taylor was already about 200 grams over uh, the the average weight for a baby at that stage, uh, and then uh, so one we knew this was going to be a large baby, and Dr. Isles admitted she knew it was going to be a large baby. That means just just harder to get through the pelvis when you're uh, you're contracting and trying to push the baby out, and there was a little bit of low amniotic fluid. The, the medical name is oligohydramnios. Uh, so that means it's more likely that the the baby will push on the cord because there's not enough liquid floating in there to keep it away. Right. Uh, and then the third thing was, this was a post-dates pregnancy. Now they tried at one time to say it, she was 41 weeks, six days, uh, you know, and I did the math on my fingers and it was exactly 42 weeks as if that made any difference. Right. You know, but, but that was the thing. I mean, they argued about stuff they shouldn't have argued about was one of the things. So, you know, one of, one of my favorite sayings is from Napoleon. You, you should never interrupt your opponent when he's screwing up. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, yeah, it's just like when you're in front of a judge and the judge is getting on the, uh, the other side. That's the time not to talk. You know, that's time to just sit there and be quiet. Right. And then the other thing was they had done an uh, amniotomy, a, a rupture of membranes where they take a little knitting needle type thing and rupture the, the membranes to hurry the pregnancy, the, the labor along generally. Uh, and it, the that that gets rid of even more amniotic fluid. And then the other thing is that would have been the time she could, because up to that point, remember that they'd had trouble keeping the monitor from pick, keeping the monitor picking up Taylor's heartbeat because of uh, moving around and those kind of things. Uh, so they could have, at that point, put a little scalp electrode on the baby. It's not something that hurts the baby. It's a little screw in the top of the head. And you get a direct reading on the heart rate rather than an indirect reading. And that's another thing Dr. Isles chose not to do that we argued about. Right. Well, and, and it, you know, and I, it, it makes, you know, especially the way you explained it, but I mean, as you, you have a, a large baby to start with, and then once the amniotic fluid is uh, going out, I mean, it's kind of like taking the water out of a swimming pool. I mean, it just means that there's a lot more chance that, that she, you know, she's going to be laying on or, you know, pressing on the cord, which is vital to her, you know, life, to her oxygen, to her nutrients and everything that she needs. Right. So, you, so, you know, and, and, you know, there was a lot of literature that supported what we were saying that in those cases, even though ACOG says you don't need to intermit, you don't need to continuously monitor, except in every one of these situations. 
All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. So I want to make sure I want to sort of understand what the defenses were in this case. Um, But I I think I want to start with knowing how they handled. Well, I want to know everything about this quote (laughs) about I think, you know what I'm going to say, but (laughs) about Dr. Isles saying patient safety is is not the most important thing. (laughs) That just, how, how do you not show your excitement when the when the defendant says that on the stand? It's, it's hard to keep a poker face. I, I was right. stunned by that, you know, yeah. but, I, but I sort of knew that because she fought with me on that during the deposition. And, you know, we we had a great expert, uh, Scott Ayersman from a little town in Holdridge, Nebraska, I think. He'd only testified once before in his whole life, about 10 years earlier. He was super to work with. I mean, I flew out there, met with him. He flew into Columbia, met with me. I mean, it was a guy who was really wanted to do a good job because he really believed in the case and was willing to understand the themes of the case, you know, not just that then spout medicine. So one of the interesting things was, was when I when I asked him on the uh, on a direct examination, what's the doctor's most important job? And, you know, I've been thinking about it. What, what else? There's no other job. OK, right. than the safety of the patient. If you, if you weren't concerned about the safety of the patient, you might as well have the baby at home. Right. So that's their <laughs> only job, not just the most important job. But he you know, he said that. And one of the defense lawyers was running his own AV stuff off of his iPad. And when he got ready to cross examine, he actually flashed up his uh, trial plan outline, which, which had a segment. <laughs> of the reptile theory, you know, <laughs> they had no idea what that was, right? But, you know, he was just all upset about the fact that Scott had said safety. He crossed the and started with, you never said anything about safety in your deposition. <laughs> and I'm going, what? You know, yeah. just, keep, just keep it up, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, but the, the fact that Isles, and, you know, and every one of her experts agreed with that, it was just uh, sort of astounding that she and, and you know, but it's one of those gifts. I mean, that's, that's I, I just read a great book, uh, the, the the biggest bluff by a, a Russian psychologist. I mean, she's an American, but she moved here from Russia. Which is five that had a goal of playing in the World Series of Poker within a year. She didn't know how many cards were in a deck when she started. Uh, she got Eric Seidel as a mentor, which was an amazing <clears> thing <throat> to start with. And the most important thing Eric told her, she says, is the most important thing you can do as a poker player is pay attention. Right. I think that's the most important thing you can do in trial. You pay yeah. attention and these gifts come to you. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah and, and to be ready for, for what's handed to you. Cause you know, you know, you have your trial plan, but you know, uh, everybody knows who's been in, in courtroom trials hardly ever go exactly the way you planned them out, but you got to be ready for that. And when you get, you know, uh, given a gift like that, where the defense is <laughs> upset about you talking about safety, I mean, the jury's got to be sitting there like, what is happening? You know? Yeah. What a great point, though, because I I know I am guilty. I am very guilty of this at trial is just, you know. Like looking down, looking for the next thing, you know, making my notes, whatever it is, and not really sitting there and watching what what's happening, even though usually I'm in a support role. So I I mean, so I could do that and I should be doing that. And instead, I'm like writing something down or looking for the next thing. But, you know, to really watch what people are doing, like I could see me being on your trial team and totally missing the fact that this guy flashed his like, <laughs> reptile thing on the screen. Yeah, well, oh. One of the advantages I have is my trial consultant uh, is my wife, Dottie. Right. She's actually a member of the American Society of Trial Consultants, and she writes down everything that happens. So I don't have to worry. Oh, that's about awesome. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can watch the witness and be in the moment with the witness, which is what I think. I mean, I had another trial where I was trying to get a piece of a, a package insert in and it was, you, you couldn't do it. It was not admissible. And the defense put up a witness to open up a anesthesia kit. You know, I looked at I looked at Donnie and I said, if if there's a God in heaven, there's going to be a package insert in that kit. And sure enough, when she tore it open, it actually fluttered to the ground. The defense lawyer didn't even notice it. So on cross-examination, I walk up and the first thing I do is pick that up and say, Judge, I want to introduce this into heaven. <laughs> and, and God bless the lawyer. He jumped up and said, no, I want to introduce the whole kit into heaven. So now you've taken away any kind of appeal on me. Oh, that's, that's great. right. That's right. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, so you mentioned that it, that they were, the defense in this case was just fighting about things that they just did not need to be fighting about. Sounds like one of the things was whether your expert had mentioned patient safety before. Um, but can you talk a little bit, you mentioned kind of, uh, sort of the reliance on this, um, these like ACOG articles, but can you talk a little bit about what the defenses were? In this case, so the defense was, you know, the, well, first of all, you know, I think they made bad choices of the witnesses they chose to bring to trial. Their GP guy had not delivered a baby for like seven years. Uh, he was being represented by the defense lawyer in his own malpractice. I, I saw that. I, I got a little trouble <laughs> about that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so so the jury just discounted him altogether. And we did some post-trial interviews, and they, he was a non-factor in the case. So now they're relying on this OB, the big-time, you know, big-town OB, who wrote this report with all these articles. But it, he was just taking the surface of the articles. One of them, one of the big ones, is this Cochrane report, which synthesizes. It's a group that synthesizes research, and they were like nine or 10, maybe even more than that, studies dealing with intermittent monitoring that said it's just as effective as continuous monitoring. But I, you know, so I went and really read the thing and it turned out that the bulk of those are, those studies were done in 1985 in Ireland. Oh, wow. And, you know, so the cross-examination was basically, look, a computer, I mean, a, a fetal monitor is basically a computer. That's what it is. And, you know, haven't, don't you agree that computers have changed since 1985? Right. Yeah. You wouldn't agree to that. Oh, you know? gosh. Uh, so I, I couldn't find an actual, I found a picture of one of those, you know, 64 kilobyte floppy disks. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Uh, they put it up in closing argument. You know, that this, this is what we were using in 1985 to get data. And, you know, yes, they have changed. And, you know, so if you did a study now, you'd probably it'd probably be a lot different. They're actually even now teaching computers how to read the strips. Well, one question I had, I, I, it seemed like maybe the way you were dealing with it, maybe the defense was, or the yeah, the defendants were trying to use this, the the knot in the umbilical cord. Were they trying to argue that that knot was a, a basically a causation defense? That, they did. They had the, okay. their, the expert was saying that somehow that not right at the end had, well, not right at the end, sometime during the labor, sometime during the pregnancy, he had knotted up and that's what caused all of Taylor's problems. Uh, 
you know, but the Taylor would ne- if that not was doing anything bad up to the time of her delivery, she wouldn't have reached more than 10 pounds because she wouldn't get as much nutrition, not only not as much oxygen, but not as much nutrition. And that's what our experts said. That it's, that, and, the, you know, the doctor, Isles, once again, she was trying to describe it, uh, that they, they put up an exemplar photo of, of an umbilical cord, not her umbilical cord. They didn't have it. Um, and that umbilical cord, although it was a true knot, was not a tight knot. And so Dr. Isles was trying to say, well, the knot was tighter than what it looks like on that picture because I could see some blue. And of course, the argument on that was immediately when Taylor was born, she was handed off to Dr. Isles after the umbilical cord was cut. And she was blue and she was floppy and she was not breathing very well and she had a low heart rate. So, you know, what was Dr. Isles paying attention to? The umbilical cord or taking care of the baby? I certainly hope she was taking care of the baby. She couldn't have been examining the umbilical cord. So, you know, a couple of shocking things that I noticed, uh, and and tell me if I'm right about this, but there comes a point where the nurse uh, couldn't find the heart rate uh, of Taylor and seemed like she kind of panicked at that point, told Josh, the husband, to call for help. They, they uh, get a doctor in there who's able to attach a, a, a scalp monitor, and it shows that the heart rate is about a 70, which is extremely low, uh, when it should be 110 to 160. Um, it, but then, and, and, then, and then you had this issue of him trying to take uh, her for a C-section and the doctor uh, Dr. Isle is basically trying to stop him so that she can push some more. And, and then and the, the other, I thought I saw a crazy thing in, in, you know, I know you had settled with the hospital, but that did Josh end up trying to resuscitate Taylor by hitting her on the bottom of the feet when the nurse like freaked out or something? He did. She, he was slapping her on the bottom of the feet and screaming at her, stop, breathe, breathe, breathe. Um, and then Dr. Isles comes in, and, and I never really understood why she would do that. But uh, Lisa was only six centimeters at that time, which is way 60% of the way you need to be to push a baby out. And, uh, you know, her argument was the heart rate had recovered some. But, you know, by that time the die was cast. Obviously, uh, Taylor was already injured by then because she yeah. was injured when she was born. Uh, and, you know, the clients thought a lot of Dr. Holm, the doctor who had delivered the baby, that they thought he really did the right thing and took charge when he got in there and, and did the best he could. Yeah, what was the, what was, what did Dr. Iowa say about trying to stop him from going to a C-section? Uh, she, she argued that uh, the heart rate had recovered and therefore it might be safer for her to push. I mean, uh, you know, it, her argument made no sense. Uh, and, you know, one of the jurors commented that, you know, during the trial, she would be sitting at the table smiling and sometimes laughing. I mean, they really just really didn't like. Oh, her. yeah. I, 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 you know, I had a similar experience with a, a it was a, um, a mom who got necrotizing fasciitis after a C-section and ended up passing away after just a terrible bout. But um, the, the, uh, the we had the OBs as one of the defendants, the surgeons as one of the defendants, you know, and then a practice. And the OBGYNs send in a different doctor every day to sit in the courtroom. And half the time they're uh, playing on their computer or playing games, not paying attention. And, the, you know, and the jury was certainly noticing. And, uh, and even uh, the other defendant, who is the, the surgeon, you know, came up to us, you know, during the breaks. And he said, I'm trying to do everything I can to move away from them at the defense table because I don't want to be associated with them because they're just sitting there not paying attention, playing video games. And it's, uh, it was embarrassing. Yeah, I bet it was. And, it, you know, I mean, that's one, one of the things that, you know, you have to make sure every young lawyer in your office knows is, you know, people have an attention span in court of about 11 minutes. And about 11 minutes, everybody's attention drifts to something. I always tell my client, the first thing it's going to drift to is you, right. you know, or everybody that's here with you. And so, you know, you better be looking like you're paying attention and, you know, have, have a rapt attention span written all over your face. Yeah. Well, I mean, they see everything. I, don't, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show before, but I, one of the, I, I think it was like the second trial I ever did with our firm, maybe the third. And I wasn't even, I didn't even like take a witness. I was not doing stuff in front of the jury. And we got to the talk to the jury after. And one of the first questions I got from a juror was why I never wore heels and I always wore flats. <laughs> and okay. 
They noticed I, everything. I mean, I was so excited to talk to them about the case, but I also did not stand up in front of the jury, except like when, you know, when they were coming in and out. And so once I saw that they picked up on that, I was like, they don't miss anything. No, that is absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, well, so, you know, one question we, the way we always ask everybody, and I know, so we, we haven't talked a lot about exactly what was going on with Taylor, but I, I understand she had like a spastic quadriplegia in uh, sort of a locked in syndrome where she knew everything that was going on around her, but basically her body and, and couldn't speak. Did, so I guess one question is, how did you present her to the jury? How was she in the courtroom ever? And um, how did you handle that? So one of my partners and I have a running argument about this because he likes to have the child come in and have a neurologist examine her in the courtroom. I really think that's a high risk endeavor and, and probably not the best. So what I tend to do, uh, because I get, we get motions all the time, the defense wants the child in the courtroom. And my compromise is we'll bring her in and introduce her during during board hour. And then, then she will not be here any any other part of the time. And we always have a day in the life video that one of the parents will narrate. And so they get to see what she's doing. And hopefully, you know, we try to get some positive things in there as well as, as difficult things. So I, I, I'm a, a believer in underexposing the child client to the jury. Yeah. I like that idea of, I'm trying to think of, what we've done in day in the life videos. I mean, I guess sometimes we've just, you know, we've had them play. I like the idea of the parent narrating. Well, it, I mean, we, so we've done it. I'm not sure. Are you, do they narrate on the video or do they narrate from the, the stand while they're, while you're showing the video? That's, that's a really good way for the parents who are not, you know, professional expert witnesses right. to be comfortable testifying because they can talk about what they're doing and it personalizes them. It personalizes the child uh, and it's been really effective for me, uh, you know, because and because they actually and they see that person doing that thing uh, so that they get a sense of these people who really love and care for this child. It, it, it works on a lot of levels. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and I mean, it sounds like at least initially and and one of the things that that you sent us the materials about this case was about how this verdict was able to help Lisa and Josh take care of Taylor um, and do things to their home that were more um, that were better for her needs. Because, I mean, and you mentioned that they, you know, basically lived on a dirt road. I have to imagine that when this happened, that they did not have the kind of home that was going to be accessible for a quadriplegic. They, they had, a, you know, a, a nice home. I think they had built it themselves. Um, and they had two boys in addition to Taylor. It, 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 but they, you know, they, they didn't have, um, uh, you know, they, they wanted Taylor to be able to get with, the, the, they are hunters and fishermen. They wanted Taylor to be go, able to go with them. And one of the things they did, they've got a paved path now for her to get to their lake. Um, and, and so it was, it, it really did help them. And, you know, one of the one of the things they talk about what helps is I, I, one of the things I like to have the parents do is each have a story about something that they, they've done with the child or something the child has done. And the idea that, that Taylor is locked in, that she's smart, but she can't express herself or her feelings and, and you know, can't do things. Uh, the, and the dad told it just uh, I almost get tears when I say it because they they had Taylor at a birthday party where the other kids were blowing up balloons and chasing them around, and they thought she was having a good time. But they had just gotten her this little talker, and she had a sign for "Give me my talker," so she signs for that. And it was like it's like an iPad, but it has a, a template with holes where she can push a you know put her finger in a hole, and it will say. I want, you know, and they'll say that out loud. And so she put her finger in the hole and said, I want, and then home. And, uh, you know, Josh said, we were so happy that she could communicate, but we were so sad that there'd been all of these times when we thought she was happy mm. and, yeah. she and she couldn't tell us. 
Yeah, oh. I mean, it's just uh, it's just so tragic. Yeah, you, you, we haven't really talked about you know how you approach damages and 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 how uh, you you presented them to the jury. Um, it, one thing I thought I noticed: it, it looks like in Iowa, are you not allowed to ask for a number in Iowa or to suggest a number? You know, I I can't remember what the law is on that now. I'm just I'm sorry, it's been. Okay. Since I, but but I think that's probably the case because I didn't ask for a specific number on, uh, although they gave us a really nice number. Right. Right. Uh, but but you know I have to. And one of the things I try to do, and one of the jurors in the post trial uh, uh, interview talked about this. He said that you know Mr. Suggs gave us many things to think about about what this would would look like in the future, and. So, you know, I like to talk about what the child is being deprived of and I like to think of things that are just common to all of us. And I have to give Dottie, my wife, Craig, credit for the, one of the very best ones is that is uh, she will never know the joy in her parents' faces when she brings home from school a macaroni necklace. And right. everybody who has a child has gotten one of those. They probably still have it, you know, <laughs> yeah. if they're grandparents, they still have it, that macaroni necklace somewhere. And that, that makes people think, oh, this, you know, and then, you know, you, and you talk about being, be having that last uh, moment with her mother before she walks down the aisle to get married, yeah. the ability, you know, those things. And, and really, Rather than talk about dollars, you know, because we started in Bordire and, you know, we did say in Bordire, we were allowed to say, this is a case that's going to involve millions of dollars. Right. Uh, do you have, are you comfortable with that? Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it was in your program. I heard maybe some other podcast. I was listening. Somebody asked that question. Are you comfortable already awarding $20 million? And, and one of the jurors said, well, no, I could live with 10. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I saw you did have a life care plan. I think that was right around 11 million and, uh, and then a, a lost wages uh, claim that was uh, almost 3 million, I think, or maybe a little bit more than two. I don't, I don't remember how much. So you, I guess you were able to present those numbers, but then yeah. as yeah. far as, and, yeah. I mean, that, and actually that's one of the interesting wrinkles in Iowa allows the defense to put in evidence of collateral sources. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I saw that in your, I think your mediation about how there was some argument over what Medicare or Medicaid was going to pay. Yeah, that, that's great. So, so they put up this expert, so-called expert named Gorman, 
who testified that basically his testimony was Obamacare is going to take care of everything. Uh, and this was, as you recall, just about the time that, you know, Mitch McConnell and crew and Trump were going to get rid of Obamacare. Right, right. Uh, and then, you know, I've thought about it since then that this probably Republican jury didn't care about hearing about Obamacare taking care of everything. <laughs> so it was another mistake. Uh, and then, and then when my economist was being cross-examined about collateral sources and Obamacare, and finally she looked at the jury while she had asked the defense, "You mean you want the taxpayers to pay for it?" Uh, but, but eventually, in my uh, cross-examination of Gorman and in my closing argument, I used this, which is a crystal ball. Oh yeah. Oh, and I love that. Said, you know, this this knows as much about the future as you, you know, because what you I've never had a witness before this job was to predict the future. Right. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, that is great. And, and, yeah, I, you know, I remember there was one defense firm here in Georgia who was trying to push that that argument that Obamacare was going to pay for everything, you know, and, and uh, so they sh- we shouldn't be able to, you know, basically get uh medical bills paid anymore. And one of the arguments was, is, well, you know, who knows if Obamacare is going to be here because, uh, you know, uh, everybody, you know, all, everybody on the Republican side and Georgia is clearly a, or at least used to be clearly a, a red Republican state, uh, you know, was, was talking about getting rid of Obamacare. Right. I, this, you know, it's, it's almost a gift, you know, because then, the, the, and then it empowers you to argue to the jury, they want to avoid their responsibility and, and make, you, your neighbors, you can't say right. you, yeah. your neighbors pay for this, you know, make us pay for it. Right. I also wonder how many of them too think about how, you know, even when you've got a good insurance company, um, you know, private insurance or, you know, and I say good in quotes, but, you know, one that's kind of easier to work with. I wonder how much they think about, I mean, I certainly think as soon as, as soon as somebody says something about that, like, oh, well, they have insurance that'll take care of it is like, have you ever had to argue with your health insurance about anything ever? (laughs) Because like, if you have somebody elderly that you care, that you take care of or somebody young, or you've ever had your own personal issue where you have to navigate something with insurance and then you take a look at one of those life care plans and how many things a quadriplegic needs both medically and just to be able to get around their house and to be able to you know take a bath and get in and out of bed it's kind of i don't know ridiculous to just take that whole list and be like don't worry they have insurance it's no problem next yeah well that's that's one of the things when you you know one of the things i had to learn the hard way was when you have a life care plan and you have a life care planner, that that evidence seems so dull and so boring and so tedious, but you have to take the time. Okay, one of the big psychological principles is availability. And you know, you people pay attention to what people pay spend a lot of time on. And so I now I go through that whole life care plan. I don't care how tedious it is and explain why they need it. And then you, we try to put as much of that into the, the day in the life as we can as well, so they can see that the, you know that's actually being used. And then I also like to get the parents to have some part of their story be about something they really need, but haven't been able to get. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, but I, I, that's great advice because I think that happens a lot at trial where you're just sort of, there's just so much going on. You've been going for a while and you're just sort of like, you know, maybe the judge is pushing you to move it along. And so you're like, uh, you know, we just need to get the numbers in. We need to get the numbers in from the life care planner, get her qualified, get her numbers in. And then the economist can talk about, you know, reducing present value and all discount rate and all that other stuff. Um, but I think that's really good advice that the, the time that you spend going through that life care plan show, shows the jury how important it is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I was I was just like what you said. I didn't want, you know, I wanted to get through that, you know, because because it seemed so tedious and I didn't want to bore the jury. But it loses the importance if you rush through it. It's got to yeah. you've got to make your damages as, as important in your case as your liability. Otherwise, you get a plaintiff's verdict, but no, you know, not mm-hmm. enough. money. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think I've told this story before on uh, the podcast, but I'll tell it one more time is I, I'll never forget. We had a, um, a life care planner, very good life care planner who gave, you know, great testimony about how he, uh, 
the care the paraplegic would need. And the defense lawyer, uh, he, he just made this mistake. It was a young guy of, um, you know, basically trying to point out that most of her life care plan was paying for an LPN to give home health care. And, uh, and, and so he, he was spending a lot of time on how that made up so much of her life care plan. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure he was leading up to, you know, how we didn't need to spend so much time with LPNs. But the life care planner, who is a very, uh, I mean, she had been doing it for a long time, a very good witness. And she just said to him, she said to him, she goes, uh, you know, uh, you, we, we've been talking about, you know, an LPN care. And she's like, but the more I think about it is I really think that she probably needs a, a registered nurse to care for her. And so you're going to have to add, you know, like, you know, go up to like $25 an hour. And that's going to add, you know, like $4 million to the life care plan. And we're just like, <laughs> we're just looking at it like, that's the best gift we ever get, you know, <laughs> on cross-examination. I, I'll tell you my favorite life care plan story. We had one with a little girl was profoundly injured. And the, the, you know, the testimony was that the only really pleasure she got was from listening to music. And, and so there was CDs, music CDs in the life care plan and the defense lawyers let a rookie, you know, a, a lawyer that was you know, like a third chair lawyer do that cross-examination. He harped on those CDs and harped on the CDs. After the case was over, the four person of the jury came by our office and brought a package of CDs. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I love that. I mean, that, that goes right to the availability you were talking about. He spent way too much time on those CDs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, go, go ahead, Iman. Well, I, I, it's unrelated to that. It's about, I, I wanted to make sure we talked about it. We touched on this earlier, how important a good local counsel can be, especially when you're, when you're trying a case in a venue that's different for you. Um, but you mentioned there was, there was another key moment that your local count, counsel had for you that I wanted to make sure that we talked about. Yeah, I'm glad you, you reminded me of that. So just before closing argument, Fred came up to me and said, you know, Ken, this, this is a small town. All of these people know each other. This is going to be hard for them to find against their local doctor, and you need to say something. And I, I, I just watched the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl, and I will get <laughs> choked up with this, um, had a sequence with a Navy SEAL and a woman helicopter pilot who'd lost her leg. In the background, they played Johnny Cash's ragged old flag. And the argument was they didn't do those things that Navy SEAL and that helicopter pilot because they were easy. They were hard things, but they did it because it was right. Yeah. And that flag that they're talking about doesn't just stand for war. It stands for justice as well. So. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Um, yeah. I got choked up too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to do the argument, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <clears throat> Steve, take it away yeah. while I'm still choked. No, out. That, that was actually I was actually going to ask the exact same question. So I guess it's a great minds, uh, great minds think alike. But um, but Ken, I wanted to ask, I mean, you you, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, shared with this so much, but I want to make sure. Is there anything about the uh, the Phillips versus uh, flexible family care in uh, Dr. Isles case uh, that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure our listeners uh, have heard? Um, you know, no, I, I can't think of anything in particular. Uh, you know, just just to say, I heard something the other day. Maybe good to end with this. That I heard a, uh, I was listening to the TED Talk podcast, and there was a conductor named Benjamin Zanders on who said, uh, "You know, I realized as a conductor, it's not my job to perform the music. It's my job to bring the music out of the other people." And then he's, the follow-up was, well, how do you know when that's happening? And he said, I look in their eyes, if their eyes are shining, I know that we're doing it. And that's the way I feel about my job is not to bring justice myself. My job is to get other people to want to do justice. Yeah. If I look in their eyes and they have that light, you know, I know we've made it. Yeah, no, and that is so important. I mean, and that's, uh, you know, the, the great thing, and we've talked about it before. I mean, the, the great part of our jobs as uh, trial lawyers is that we get to uh, make real change in people's lives uh, and, and deserving people. Um, maybe, you know, I, I guess I, I saw that your clients had actually uh, written a letter and maybe even testified to the legislature in Iowa 
about uh, tort reform measure and basically gave the example of what happened to to Taylor in this case. Um, so first of all, I, I was going to ask, how is Taylor doing today? And then uh, how, how did that testimony go in, in Iowa? Well, so just just right after this case, the Iowa uh, legislature was considering tort reform. And in, in that instance, Lisa traveled to Des Moines and testified live. I wasn't there. I'm Fred handled that. Um, but then it came up again this year. And of course, Lisa did not want to travel during the COVID uh, right. pandemic. So she wrote that letter, which is, is um, it, it, you know, I'll, I'll keep that letter for the rest of my life because yeah. it is, and I shared it with the whole firm. This is this and and my friends on a group I belong to, because this is what we're all about. This this and, and one of the most wonderful things she said in that letter was this gave us the power to control our own lives. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and you know and and that's that's the key. That that is that's the payoff. Is yeah. we have a chance to give people back the power over their own lives, and and you know she said. You know, she would never have her best life. Right. But she'll have the best life she can have now. Yeah. 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 I thought yeah, that was, was wonderful. And those specific examples are so important. I mean, there's so many, at least in Georgia, you have a lot of non-lawyer legislators. You have voters who are obviously unfamiliar with tort reform and, and you know, caps sound to them like a good idea until you point out one specific example, yeah. like, like, Taylor and what this meant for for her and her life and how drastically different her life would be if, you know, her damages were capped at a low number. And, and, you know, if it's just insurance paying for it, they'll pay for the wheelchair, they'll pay for the doctor visits, but they won't pay for the special fishing dock her parents were right. able to set up so she can go fishing with her brothers. Yeah. You know, th those the kinds of things that make life worth living. Yes. Right. Uh, you're not absolutely. always you're not always going to have juror, jurors who are going to bring by packs of CDs. <laughs> that's so right. You that's can't right. count on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's such a great uh, that's such a great story. I love I love the pack of CDs. Well, Ken, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. This has been just a, a, a really uh, fascinating case, and you've given us some um, you know really good lessons on. And I feel like the, the past couple of people we've had a bond of just you know where they take very complex cases and just boil them down and, uh, and present them in a way that's, uh, you know, uh, easy for the jury to understand and to do justice with. Um, so fantastic work. I mean, we've been, so we've been talking about the case of Phillips versus uh, Lynette Isles and flexible family care. It was in Washington County, Iowa. Right, we've been talking to Ken Suggs, a partner at Janet, Janet and Suggs. And uh, if you, you want to learn more about Ken, you can look him up at jjsjustice.com. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.